Welcome to Profiles. I'm Gina Asher. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers, to the WFIU audience. Our guests today are award-winning actress and mental health advocate Glenn Close. She's the founder of BringChangeToMind.org, an organization aimed at reducing stigma associated with mental illness. With her are Bring Change to Mind Executive Director Pamela Harrington and Bernice Pesco-Salido, the Science Advisory Council Chair for the organization. Welcome to our program. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Many in our audience will know Glenn Close as a longtime actress whose career has earned so many awards, a career that includes film, stage, and television work. You may not know of her work as a producer or composer, where she's also won accolades, and fewer still know of her work with Bring Change to Mind until now, of course. The organization was founded in 2009, but this issue's been close to your heart and to your family, Glenn. Tell us why you wanted to establish this organization. Well, it actually, it actually the, the seed of it was the day, one summer day, when my sister Jessie and I were visiting my mother, and I remember it was outside my mom's house. She lives in a little town in Wyoming. Uh, Jessie came up to me. She said, I need your help. I can't stop thinking about killing myself. And I had been, you know, really kind of disconnected from her. She lives in Montana. I was working all around, you know, whatever uh, location or mostly New York and Sometimes L.A. So, and I really, you know, back in in those days, I really did not, on a regular basis, talk to her. Um, I knew that her son had already been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, so it was kind of a shock out of the blue that she came up to me and asked for help. And we got her help. We were very lucky to be able to afford to give her help. Um, so I took her back to McLean Hospital and just outside of Boston, where she was finally properly diagnosed at, at age 50 with bipolar disorder. So when Jesse and then Kayla and her son asked me to help, I thought, well, this is where I should be spending all my nonprofit time. And because they told me and I observed how the stigma around their illnesses was just as bad as the illnesses themselves. For example, my nephew lost all his friends when he came home. He was, he was in the hospital for two years. It saved his life. But when he came home, he was not the same boy who left. And his friends, it was too frightening, and, and they, they didn't know what was going on. So I thought, and also with my knowledge of messaging and entertainment and all that, that I would um, put all my efforts into messaging around stigma and misunderstanding and discrimination around mental illness. So how do you start something like that? You're inspired, but to actually raise something from the ground up, how do you do that? Well, the first thing I did, I, t- I took a long time to figure out how I wanted to enter the world of mental health advocacy. And because I am New York-based, I wanted to ha- have it a place that was in my own home, in my own backyard. And uh, just serendipitously, I met somebody who was on the board of Fountain House. And Fountain House is, an, is a really fantastic organization. It's kind of a clubhouse setting for people living with mental illness. They run it, and they also learn trades. Their aim is to help people live independently and to get work. It's not clinical. It's very much peer-to-peer. And it's, in, it's a very, very healing and positive atmosphere. So I went into there, and I, and I volunteered on various, you know, programs, and I was able to look into the face of the people that I wanted to advocate for. And um, it was a life-changing experience for me. And then um, with Fountain House and with other people that I met, you know, in that uh, landscape who actually, four of them already had uh, mental health organizations of their own, but they rallied around to, to start Bring Change to Mind we started it, and our first the first thing that we did was raise uh, quite a lot of money because our, we ambitiously made our first PSA in Grand Central Station. And that PSA that we rolled out in the fall of, of 09 mm-hmm. 
has had probably now, I mean, like six months ago, was over 800 million views. And that's all pro bono. So that was the beginning. So is the organization designed to bring awareness to the problem? And it, and is it all, um, it's not a physical structure. It's a, it's based online and it, and then you um, continue to raise uh, money for public service announcements, awareness. What, what other kinds of things do you do? Well, as- what, what we're doing is besides creating a very vibrant um, online community of Facebook and our own website, Twitter, our base mission is to help people to start talking about it within their families, with their friends, um, because one in four of us is touched in some way by mental illness. And the first step towards healing, towards recovery, towards being able to get help, towards being able to support the person that you know or love who is living with mental illness is to be able to articulate and talk about it. And then you educate yourself and you become an advocate. So um, it's been my sister Jess and my, my nephew. Um, we've talked all over the country Before I actually leapt off the cliff (laughs) or into the sky, um, I called them up and I said, would you be willing to out yourself, if you will, with mental illness on a national campaign? And they said yes without hesitation. I don't think they really knew what they were getting into (laughs) because they've been incredibly courageous. But we've used the face of our family to begin that message. And I think as we get more feet on the ground, as they say, there will be more families who hopefully will join us and have the courage to talk about, you know, the life of living with mental illness. It's, it's, I want to kind of, it's a strange way to say it, but I want to normalize it so that we can talk about it as easily and as openly as cancer or diabetes or any other chronic illness. It seems like our culture, at least if you watch TV, is pretty willing to talk about anything. What do you think has been the reason for the reticence to talk about mental illness in this way? What has been the stumbling block? First of all, I think that people perceive, and even people who are living with mental illness think that they become their illness because it's in your brain. And we we think our brain is who we are. But that's not true. You're not your illness. But I think because people can change with meds, um, they can change, their looks can change, their behavior can change, that people, it can be frightening. And even though people um, know uh, kind of the the science of it, that mental illness is like any other illness, that you can get uh, therapy, you can get medication, and you can live a productive life, it's very frightening when you have the first onset and people start behaving differently and they look different and they isolate themselves or they become unreachable, you know, and so, and people don't know what to do. A lot of times they don't, like my family, it never even came into our consciousness that it could be a mental disorder with my sister. So I think, uh, and then also the media doesn't help. I think they're very misleading, um, cliches about people mental or supposedly mentally ill. But I was just talking to Bernice that, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's, there's uh, personality disorders and, they're mental, and there's mental illness. They're two different things. And so we just have to educate ourselves as a population so that we can include people with mental illness with all their gifts and all their creativity. Bernice, tell us a little more about that about the differences and and how people respond or how they should respond? Well, I think it's one thing to acknowledge that uh, there is something called mental illness and it's a disease of the brain. I think it's a very different thing to confront one of your loved ones or even a stranger on the street and see people behaving in ways that are not normative. And you don't really know what to do with that. So it's a It's a typical phenomenon we see in research that intellectually people understand it, but, you know, in terms of face-to-face contact, people don't know how to respond and they don't know what to do and they're afraid because they too have lived in a culture that 
uh, stigmatizes people. And by that, we really mean the sort of prejudice and discrimination that goes along with this. And so, you know, we might give people benefits, you know, SSI for having a mental illness, but then we also don't have a place for them in our society. And so we isolate them. And so, you know, we have this very different uh, dichotomy going on in society where we, we, we get it, but we don't get it. And that makes it very confusing for people. And of course, just like people don't want to confront, you know, somebody in their family that has cancer, they don't want to deal with mental illness. And it's even more mysterious from their point of view. You can't often see the cancer. You can't often see the mental illness as well. And unlike cancer, um, we've devoted much fewer of our resources in the United States and around the world to the mental illnesses. And so we haven't made as much progress as we have with heart disease or with with cancer, as we have with, say, depression. And according to the Global Burden of Disease study, depression is going to be the second leading illness worldwide by 2020. So we really have this, even in the research, we have a devaluing of this whole area compared to cancer and heart disease. I just want to add something to that because I think it's highly ironic that we think that everybody living with a mental illness acts weird, looks weird, and is and is un, you know, makes you uncomfortable and sometimes maybe even a little afraid. They're unpredictable and they might be a little scary. But one in four, That's one right. in four of us. So one in four as you walk across this campus, one in four as you walk down the street, most of the people dealing with mental illness are just like you and me. So it's, it's, that's the irony. I think you're right, Glenn, because, you know, in the studies that we've done, the national studies, we see that 60 percent of Americans don't want to work closely on the job with somebody with mental illness. But they probably are. They oh, are. Of course But they the people are. Next, to the, next to them who are perfectly functional, perfectly competent, probably even stellar, are not disclosing for fear that they are going to be devalued once that one label is 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 attached to them. So I think there is this this real issue that we have to confront that has traditionally been called stigma. And confront it you do in the public service announcements where uh, the listeners who might want to go online and see these, uh, people are wearing T-shirts that say uh, what mental illness they have, and the people walking with them are people who are wearing a shirt that says sister or coworker. Um, and I'm sure the, the point of that was to show uh, a thousand people and their connections to mental illness. So, yeah, because we shot it in Grand Central Station, and at the end of it, everybody's t -sh white T-shirt disappears and they become one of the crowd, which was a visual uh, message that in that crowd were people that you had no clue were living with mental illness, but they're there. And uh, a lot of them live with a terrible secret, and it's no way to live. What's happened to your sister and nephew since they've, if you will, been outed or outed themselves, as well as the other people uh, who are featured in the videos? Well, it's, it's kind of thrilling for me because... It's not theoretical what's happened to my family. It's real. And I get very moved to think of back in August of, of 2009 when my sister, with her little tiny service dog, who she was clinging to, um, and her nephew, and my, my, my nephew, um, Kalen, walked into Grand Central Station that was very noisy, very crowded. There was Ron Howard and all his crew with all the lighting and everything. I could see them. I could feel them shrinking because it was terrifying. And Kalen still was at the point where he wore dark glasses a lot because that was his way of, of removing himself and of, you know, not revealing his, his fragility at the time. And I wondered at, the, at that time whether they could make it through the day. We had 12 hours to do our, our PSA. And they did make it, and they not only made it, but they made it with their illness on their chest all day. Since then, they have become amazing advocates for mental health. And they, Jessie is a natural speaker. And she, I mean, I speak with her, and I never want to f follow her because she's, <laughs> it's impossible. She, she is a wonderful speaker. And she just has such a great connection with people. Um, so, and she's a different person. Kaylin, 
Uh, I think it's much more difficult for him to talk in the public, but he does it. He writes his speeches. He gets up there. And he, I think last month, he went alone to Winnipeg, Canada, and spoke for 45 minutes to an organization that had invited him up to speech. That never would have happened before. He actually said to me when we were shooting our second PSA that was this past spring, he said he felt as if his brain was healing. Now, whether it is or not, it doesn't matter because that's how he feels. And that's what I've seen. And since I've heard from our from our wonderful scientists that advocacy, being able to speak about it, is a huge step towards recovery. I think one of the things that's really interesting is how I saw Kalen at the last filming of the most recent PSA because um, it was great to be invited because we had done some research to show that this particular way of addressing issues of stigma did have an effect on moving the needle of stigma, of affecting people's attitudes. And so Glenn invited me to come up um, one April day in, in Harlem where they were filming this in this beautiful house with leaded glass. And I didn't know where I was going, but the cab driver dropped me off and I sort of walked up to where I saw these trucks and <laughs> I see this, you know, young, handsome, very good looking man. And I said, now, where would Glenn Close be? And he looked at me, came over and hugged me and it was <laughs> Kalen. I had no idea. And so this idea, and I had met him before, but he was so alive mm -hmm. and so confident that it took me a while to kind of shake that off and say, oh, I, I was embarrassed because it was like I didn't know him. He obviously had remembered me, and I just thought he was one of the crew. Did he look different? He was more confident. Body than language. When I had, yes, his body language was, was, you know, like he belonged there, like he owned it. He owned that site. He did a fabulous job with the PSA. And um, when I had seen him before, he was more dressed up, you know, more stiff and I think more tentative. And so this was really one of those moments where you just say people can recover and they can do a great job. And, uh, you know, as the recovery movement and mental illness says, you know, recovery is not, you know, getting better and not having a disease anymore. We certainly don't say that about people with diabetes, but it's living a full life despite your illness. And that day I saw, I saw Kaylin really mm -hmm. just amazing at the peak of what I would consider, you know, his recovery from mental illness. So I'm not surprised, Glenn, to hear that he says that he feels his brain is healing. Kalen will tell you it's taken him 11 years, and he has worked at it. And I have such respect for that. I think it shows a kind of uh, a strength that, that, I, that I have, you know, I'm just, I, 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 he blows me away. Both of them do. So it's, it's not easy, but it's possible. So how does Bring Change to Mind aim to help others arrive at that kind of resolution, not resolution, but that kind of acceptance and thriving within it? I mean, what is the organization working for to extend that beyond Kaylin to oh, other yeah. people? Well, it is. I mean, we tell about some of these wonderful we groups. We receive thousands of emails each week from people who have seen the PSA or have come onto our website to watch the videos. And they have found their voice for the first time. They're amazed that they see someone like a Kaylin or a Jesse who have come out and told their stories and the courage that it takes to tell their stories. And they then bring that story to their family or to their schoolmates or to their colleagues. We've had uh, students in universities around the country who have outed themselves in assemblies and saying, you know, I, I've been living with, you know, whatever their particular diagnosis is. But, you know, I'm here to support somebody else that might need help or, you know, a shoulder to, to lean on. And it's just been really incredible. We've got this wave of support and people that are starting conversations and that are coming to our website and sharing their stories and then sharing within their own communities. And it's been I it's think been the tipping point will be reached in two ways. We hope to connect organizations. It doesn't matter how big or how little they are but to connect the people who on the ground in their communities are helping people talk about what they're living with, um, that basic step, and supporting them. 
And uh, I mean, there are wonderful organizations like uh, Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance who, in the cities that they are, they have places where people can go in and talk safely, you know, in a safe environment. There are all kinds of wonderful. And, but we, not, we, have to, we have to connect. De, um, Bernice knows all about con- connectivity and how imp- important it is. Um, but for example... Um, so I can be a messenger, and I think I think what we will do is keep messaging as we can, speak uh, as much as we can, hopefully, you know, multiply with those stories um, so that people can be um, inspired to do something. Um, but, for example, Jesse and I just were down in uh, Mullica Hill, New Jersey, and there is a, a group of women called the Mullica Hill uh, Women's Triathlon Club. And they started, uh, I don't know how many years ago, not terribly long ago. Four years ago. They're now 800 strong. And their whole mission is to raise money for charities that they all decide to, to support. Every year they do another charity. Well, they, they, they did bring change to mind, and it impacted their membership so profoundly that they have taken us on for two more years, for, for three years. So we went down there for their big triathlon of the fall. And... Um, I have never been so moved and impressed because they are doing on the ground in their community the th- kind of thing that's going to have this country reach a tipping point about mental illness. Not only were they, were they you know, having this great, wonderful, get in shape and do something good, which every woman wants to do, right? But they, they have workshops where people from the community come and actually learn about the issues. So Jesse and I spoke to them. And uh, women and men, it wasn't just, but, and then two of their members got up, and uh, because they are about courage to tell your story, and these two women, for the first time, told about suicides in their family and how it had been hidden and sh- and shamed, and you know the the mental illness that had had led to that was not talked about, and the toll that it had taken. Not uh, you know on them and on their on their family and it was it was an amazing event. It was totally authentic. It was it was you know a group of people talking to their their peers and people in their community, and uh, it you know we were there to just kind of cheer them on, you know, and uh, so it was great. Groups like that I think will proliferate, and I think. Also, universities have a huge uh, part in this, and that's why it's so exciting to be here. Does it seem then like it will be a grassroots kind of change, that you're bringing awareness to it, but it'll be up to communities, small groups, it has to triathlon be women? Change will come grassroots. We've not- got the, the broad reach in the messaging, and it's been really interesting to watch the grassroots organization reach out to us and say, you know, we want to adopt your mission, ending stigma in our community. How can we work with you? And that's, you know, how these triathlon ladies came to us. But this is happening in all the states around the country. And even overseas, we've had people coming to us that want to do walks or, or any kind of, you know, bingo events. You know, it's, it's really grassroots. And they're starting the conversations in their community. But they're empowered by the message that they see from Bring Change to Mind. So when they do come to you, what is your, how do you facilitate or how involved do you get? It depends on the event, but we're fairly involved. You know, we, we, we need that depth into the community. We don't have the, we're a very small, lean and mean organization. So we rely upon these community organizations to, to do the work. Um, and we support them with materials and with every bit of help that we can but we, we certainly do rely upon the community organizations to, to start the conversation. You know, we're still, I'd say we're in our late adolescence as an organization, and now we have to seriously get down to fundraising so that we can really do what, you know, what we see needs to be done. And that, to me, is very exciting. And I think it will be a combination of growing the grassroots you know, connecting, doing this wonderful network, you know, that all of a sudden it will not be okay to to talk about mental illness in a certain way. And it will be okay to, to, to feel free to, to uh, talk openly about it. But also we're interested in um, the kind of work that Bernice does and a lot of our other scientific advisors do, which is to 
um, know if we're actually causing change. You know, it's not about just goodwill. It's about saving lives, which this ultimately is about. And so this first experiment that we did was uh, after an international stigma conference, and we saw some of the PSAs that were done in England, where they've had amazing funding from the lottery. The lottery, you know, we so, and they had not only had this certain PSA, but they had surveys about it. They had measured it scientifically. They got all these different aspects of it, and it was very, very. Um, it's called Psycho, the movie, and because schizophrenia and psycho is such a scary word in this country, we thought. This is very good. But let's use it to be the first one that Bernice and her team can test to see how you talk about it because yeah. it's very interesting. Well, I think, you know, there are a lot of good people out there who want to do lots of good things. But the question really is what Glenn said. Are we moving the needle? Are we making a difference? And up until now, there have either been these small-scale interventions or they've been big public campaigns with no measurement of whether or not they've mattered. So uh, we decided that it would make a lot of sense since we were all enthralled by this video because it's a bit shocking. And people can go to the Bring Change to Mind website and see this uh, PSA. Uh, can we Americanize it and then um, give it to a, a, a representative sample of Americans around the country and see if it changes? And the answer was yes, that it can change people's attitudes, people's um, people's knowledge about things. And I think this was really important because we did it in two steps. We did it in a version where Glenn and her people took the British version and dubbed it so it was American English. And then once that seemed like it was promising from the research, then Glenn and Jesse and Kaylin redid it as a family. And that second sample that we got actually turned out to be a more liberal sample to start than the first sample we looked at. And it still moved their needle. And the question people always ask me is, well, can you really change hearts and minds or do you want to change behavior? And I have to say, as a scientist, that I think the, if, if people know that they can't express prejudice and discrimination, that's the first step. Whether or not they believe it in their heart is really another issue. What we want is people to be treated equally and fairly and justly. So um, knowing that it's no longer okay to use uh, words like psycho or schizo, and people always in America have always used them incorrectly anyway, um, <laughs> is sort of a first step to saying, you know, well, yeah, I'm thinking about this now, and I know not to say that. And I think that that's a good first step. So, but you know, also don't. It's it, we're so sensitive as a species. You know, the yes. rolling of an eye, the turning of a head can kill you. And uh, I think that's uh, the the one other thing that I'm learning. And correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, is that you can um, change your attitude, but that might not change your behavior. That's right. And it's the behavior that we ultimately want to change. And I have learned that the, in this country, there are five things that are the backbone of stigma that are still there and still deeply entrenched. Now, help me with this. Okay. <laughs> we can remember together. One is don't want them as neighbors. You don't want them as – well, you don't want them to take care of your children. You don't want them to, tr to teach your children. You don't wor want to work closely on the job with them. You think they're unpredictable. And you don't want them as an in-law. And you don't want them as an in-law. That's, that's right. still pretty deep. It's, and so that's it's like, across. This is a country that this is a study that we're doing right now. There's 18 countries around the world. Yeah. And those were sort of the five items that at least half of the representative population of every country we studied agreed that they didn't want people that were described. They didn't, we didn't even tell them they had a mental illness. We just described them as having either depression or schizophrenia. And they were like, no, thank you. You know, meanwhile, they probably, as we talked mm. about earlier, they probably are, are friends with people like that who are afraid to disclose. Right? The great, but, the thing that was uh, a very moving moment for me when we were making our latest PSA uh, was something that Kaylin, uh, Kaylin's wife said. Kaylin, my, my nephew with, who has schizophrenia, got married, and, uh, um, and he's having, you know, a, a great life and I mean ups and downs like anybody else but it's a good life 
And Meg, his wife, uh, was being interviewed, and the interviewer said, um, well, so when you went home and you told your parents that you were asked out on a date by a young guy with schizophrenia, what did they say? And she said, well, they were horrified. And um, then the interviewer said, well, what happened? And she said, they met him. And I think across the board, that is probably the most effective way to change people's behavior. That's right. Is to actually meet somebody who is living with a mental illness and realizing, you know, that they are not their illness, that they are... They're a whole person. A whole person. And that's one of the things that the research says is that one of the reasons we continue to then to look at attitudes, because if you say, well, we're really trying to change behavior, why are you looking at attitudes? It turns out that attitudes are like the litmus test. People, at least in the United States, and I suspect that there's cross-cultural research on this as well, people are more willing to say nasty things than they are to do nasty things face-to-face. So you get sort of the bottom line of how bad things can be when you ask them questions about people they don't know and that they're just thinking Mm -hmm. about generally. But when they actually meet people, they're much more hesitant. We're talking with actress Glenn Close who co-founded Bring Change to Mind in 2009 to change the way we look at people with mental illness, and Bring Change to Mind Executive Director Pamela Harrington and Scientific Chair Bernice Pesco-Salido. As we go to break, we'll hear John Mayer's Say, a song used in the first Bring Change to Mind public service announcement. Tell us why you chose this song. We were working with a wonderful, uh, small ad agency at the time, and they had reasons for wanting to do this uh, with us as well. And uh, I have to say that 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 came out of their idea, this one girl, Maggie, who had mental illness in her family, and she uh, read us the words of say, uh, say what you need to say. And it it was so perfect. And it's very kind of emotional, great music. And um, so out of the blue, I called up Michael, Michael McDonald, right, right, who's uh, John uh, Mayer's manager. And um, we got permission. And they've given us permission to use that song, you know, ever since. with actress Glenn Close, who co-founded Bring Change to Mind, an organization that aims to eliminate the stigma and the discrimination toward those with mental illness. With her are Bring Change to Mind Executive Director Pamela Harrington and Bernice Pesco-Salido, the Science Advisory Council Chair for the organization. Welcome back. In the news, we've heard a lot about Uh, mass shootings, gun control, and within that conversation was mental illness. So in light of what you're telling us now, um, how should we interpret that? Is it a good thing that people were saying you shouldn't be connecting these two things all the time, or did it further the stigma? Well, I think it's really good that they said you shouldn't connect them, because I think think that's one of the big uh, mis- uh, perceptions. We were talking before that there are personality disorders and there's mental disorders, and they're very different. And a psychopath is a personality disorder. And but we we in our ignorance we clump everything together, and the stigma just augments. I mean, my sister Jess gets very afraid. You know, a, a, a woman who's been on national television talking about her mental illness when something like that happens, 
um, it really impacts everybody who is living with mental illness. And it's, it's not a good thing. How, how could it be a good thing? But I hope, I think what's good is that I think the conversation is getting better. I don't know if you agree I with I agree me. with that. I think that when we were called about the White House conference at first, it was in response to Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, a connection between guns and mental illness. In fact, three times in the second presidential debate, uh, President Obama said, we have to get guns out of the hands of the mentally ill. Mm. And I just about lost it that night. But if you listen to President Obama's uh, comments at the beginning of the w- White House conference. We have moved the White House yeah. a long way in the right direction because, you know, every stereotype continues to exist because there's a kernel of truth. And the kernel of truth is is that there is one very, very small group of people with mental health disorders who are more dangerous. And those are people who are either using substances, um, or using alcohol or drugs. But on average, if you look at the numbers, people with mental health disorders are far less violent than young men in general. And so, you know, the, 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 it's, it's misplaced. And so uh, we really have to fight that fight on the issue of mental illness and violence because the MacArthur Mental Health Studies have made it clear the conditions under which people are violent. And a stronger risk factor is being maltreated as a child, no matter whether or not being beaten as a child, whether or not you have a mental disorder, you don't have a mental disorder. So there are so many other things that come into play that if we really want to reduce violence, uh, one thing we can do is just age the population. And <laughs> We're back to that, are we? <laughs> <laughs> Um, You touched on this earlier, Glenn, about uh, the entertainment industry and mental illness. And, of course, one of your most famous roles, Alex, in Fatal Attraction, that was in... I think we shot it in 88. (laughs) I could know because that was when I was pregnant with my daughter, and I didn't know it when we did that reshoot in the bathtub. (laughs) (laughs) It was some years ago. Some years ago, 25 years ago. It was before you started thinking about mental health and advocacy. So... If we talk about mainstream media connecting violence and gun control, what should the entertainment industry be doing? Are there are there examples that you can think of where it, uh, someone with a mental illness was portrayed in a positive way or in a non-stigmatized way? Or what can you be doing on that front? I think that's changing, too. I think there's still a huge... <laughs> uh, it, it's so easy to say that somebody is bad because they're mentally ill. You know, and and every story has to have an antagonist. And if it's not going to be a Nazi anymore, it's either somebody who's a who's a terrorist or somebody who's mentally ill. That's the easiest way. You know, I think um, Silver Linings Playbook was incredibly positive. And um, I've met people who said my son, uh, who who is bipolar and uh, has bipolar disorder, went to the movie and was able to talk about it for the first time. It kind of gave him permission to feel okay about himself. That was huge. And um, I think there have been uh, other movies that have been positive. And I think I think more and more, I, I would like to think that there'll be more. It's a, it's a tricky subject to try to dramatize truthfully. And uh, I think also there might be, I mean, I personally now with my with my much better awareness about the issues and everything, I will not do certain parts, even though they might be juicy, you know, for an actor. I won't do it because, first of all, I'm now known as an advocate for mental illness and I just can't in my conscience do something that would perpetrate a stigma. So um, and I hopefully with higher awareness, there'll be more actors who do the same thing and there it just it will come about where people just won't play those parts. I mean, I think I I you know unless they're treated, you know, explained or, or just something, you know. Um, I think there's been a real evolution starting with although I have to tell you stigma researchers do argue about this a lot, but I believe starting with Monk that there really has been positive portrayal of people with mental health problems, at least people who are likable. You know, and people who you really admire for uh, their talents. And I think two that are on currently that I have a lot of respect for are uh, the depiction in Homeland 
of Kerry, the CIA agent. I think that's really good, especially this last arc where it turns out she was hospitalized, but that actually turned out to be a cover mm. for a very intricate thing they were going to do. And also Eric McCormick in Perception. I think that's very positive. But the the next stage evolution, so that's very important, but the next stage evolution is when you have a character who's portrayed as doing X or Y, whatever, um, and they happen to have a mental yeah. illness. The three characters I've mentioned, I think Carrie comes closest to that in Homeland because you don't even find out that she has bipolar disorder until later. But I think that, that if uh, perception can do for mental illness what Will and Grace did for homosexuality in this country, we'll be in great shape. So <laughs> I, I think I more think portrayals like that. Because I, Mike Nichols, the great director, once said that you should always have secrets. And secrets actually make your characters much more interesting because you might have an image in your head of something that's impacted your character's life that will inform behavior in a certain moment. So when we come to the point where somebody says, well, my secret is going to be that I'm depressed and nobody knows it. Or my secret is that I have you know, bipolar disorder and nobody knows it. But I understand that behavior and it will make my character more interesting. And it will be like somebody perhaps that is in the workplace that nobody knows about, but it's valid and it's authentic. And I think that would be interesting. If mm-hmm. the numbers are one in four then why why is the stigma still so strong? Because what you just said about, you know, it's somebody who has a secret and somebody you're working with or living with or related to. So if it's one in four, how how can it still be this way? I mean, I'm sure this is a rhetorical question and this is what got you all to bring change I to mind about, to begin with, but I think about that all the time. I think it's incredible. I think it's all the things that we've been talking about. It for me it's like the final frontier. Women vote. We, you know, we've come a long way with race relations. We're still way behind as far as mental illness is concerned. And I think there will come a time when we will look back and say, do you remember when nobody could ever talk about it? Do you remember that? I and, think that that's very interesting because... I, I think about it, and I don't know. Do you know why? Well, I think part of it is in the study we did in Indianapolis where we followed about 180 first-timers, people making their first contact with the mental health system, We got a lot of people that we could talk to the first time, and then when we went back six months later, a lot of people didn't want to talk to us. They were like, that's a one-time thing. So when we say one in four, one thing that we have to remember is that there are quite a large percentage of people who have one episode in their life, and that's it. Uh, so that's that's the first thing. It isn't always this chronic degenerative course that we've got in our heads. That's not what happens. But what was interesting to us was when we went back the third time for the, the what we call the second wave, a lot of the people that wouldn't talk to us came back because they said, oh, I realize that this is a chronic illness. It's not something that was a one-time thing. Not everybody came back because for some people it was. For some people it was devastating. But for some people, you know, they had they got better for a while. Then, you know, they stopped taking their meds and or they stopped therapy or they just, you know, something happened again to them and they, they, they sort of, you know, went into another episode. There were all different kinds of pathways. So when we say one in four, that's one in four lifetime. And that doesn't mean one in four branded for a lifetime. Still, there would be high numbers. I mean, even if it's Mm -hmm. one in 10, that's a lot of people. That's somebody in your life somewhere. Stigma goes back to medieval. I mean, Greece goes back to ancient Greece. You know, stigma. I mean, mental illness, you were supposed to be, you know, obsessed by the devil. I mean, it's always had negative connotations. And Culturally speaking, that's incredibly powerful. Um, And our culture, I mean, there are cultures that is much worse. We've understood that as any kind of disease becomes more curable, that the stigma tends to go down, right, more containable. And without the resources given to mental illness... We just are not that far along. The, the brain has turned out to be an incredibly complex organ, but so has cancer. It turns out cancer is a whole family of things. Um, but the public mental health system is really in, a problem in this country. It's really in trouble. Mm. You have people who are trying to help other people, but the current statistics suggest that people with mental illness treated in the public mental 
health system in America have a shortened life expectancy of 7 to 12 years. And so mm -hmm. there's something we have to fix in terms of parity. We have a parity law on the books, but I'd like to see it in reality. How can Bring Change to Mind help this? Keep slogging away <laughs> at it. I, you know, it, it's not, you know, stigma has been entrenched for so long, and it's such a knee-jerk reaction, I think, for for a lot of us. Um, and I don't, you know, I think some, it's sometimes something that you're not even aware of. Um, that it has to be, it has to be dealt with it from all angles. You know, we we know that you know it will take a lot of partnerships. It will take a lot of communities. It will take a lot of uh, you know people who really care about the issue and, and it's people who who ha are experiencing it. And there are a lot of them, you know, who have an emotional connection um, are the ones that we hope to inspire to come out and, you know. You're visiting Indiana University for a few days as part of a series of programming that's looking at connectedness. And you're going to give a lecture called Ending Stigma, Changing Minds, and Saving Lives Through Mental Health Advocacy. How do you see this theme of connections in your own advocacy for educating people about mental illness? And should we all be looking for connections? I think it's human to need connections. I think it's it, we're not made to exist as islands alone. I think that's why it's so desperate when people are isolated and are silent. Um, so I think it's our natural proclivity to want to connect, to want to communicate, to feel worth, you know, that you're living a, a life that's, that's worthy. Um, you want you to feel that about yourself. The way, you know, I mean, the connectedness, I've, I've, first of all, I connected with my sister in a new way than I ever had before when I learned about her mental illness. And together, as, as a family, we're connecting, we're making unbelievable connections with people as we meet them and talk to them. And then those people go on to make connections. And I think it has to be this kind of ripple effect that's like, you know, hopefully those connections will go viral and and people will be aware of it. I think I think it's very exciting that there is the kind of social media now that makes that makes that connectivity possible in ways that it might not have anymore. You know, we don't have to communicate by smoke signals, you know, from mountain to mountain. We have uh Instagram and Twitter and all that which I'm trying. Um so you know, the possibility is there. And um we hope to have a lot of great mentors and and to figure it out. I can't say that we know exactly, you know, where we evolve. I think it, it has to be that way. But um, it's been very exciting and very illuminating so far. Um, Pamela Harrington, how can people get more involved? We have a really active online community um, where you can come to our website and we have a pledge um, with numerous steps as to how you can end stigma, self-stigma, stigma in your family, stigma in your community. So we encourage people to come to the website, bringchangetomind.org, and take our pledge. We have a series of walks around the country. You can sign up for a walk. And um, we have a toolbox with lots of inf information and um, things that you can um, print off and and pictures and and certainly our Facebook and, and Twitter handles are, are very active for people to come and visit us and learn more about what we're all about. We've been talking with actress Glenn Close, who co-founded Bring Change to Mind, an organization that aims to eliminate the stigma and the discrimination toward those with mental illness. Bring Change to Mind Executive Director Pamela Harrington and Bernice Pesco-Salito, the Science Advisory Council Chair for the organization, also joined us today. Glenn said her musical selection to wrap up the show today was from Albert Nobbs, the 2011 film she produced, co-wrote the screenplay, and was nominated for an Academy Award for her leading role. But she also composed the lyrics for Lay Your Head Down, and we'd like to end with that song. Tell us more about this piece. I co-wrote Albert Nobbs, and um, my fellow producers felt that it should 
have a song at the end. And at first I was very kind of against it because I didn't want to manipulate anybody's emotions. You know, I wanted the story to stand on its own. But the last image in the movie is of uh, women holding a, a, a baby. And I loved lullabies when I was growing up. I loved them. I listened to them all the time, and I sang lullabies to my daughter when she was a baby. So I thought it really fit in that we sh- we could uh, write a lullaby. And um, that's where uh, the wonderful composer, Brian Byrne, Irish, wrote the beautiful tune. And I was sitting at my, my um, kitchen table in Bedford, New York, <laughs> writing the lyrics just 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 agonizing over it. The beginning was very slow, and I'd call him over in Ireland and read him a line. He'd say, very good, very good, you know, keep at it, keep at it. And then um, it was it was great. Our, 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 the person we really wanted to record it was Sinead O'Connor, because she has, she has, she's such an amazing person and a great artist, and she was on tour in Bulgaria. So this recording, that you will hear, was actually recorded in Bulgaria. Brian was on his computer Skyping and directing it from his mother's kitchen in Ireland, and I was in Maine in my kitchen listening in as well, and it was crazy. And uh, it came out, she she just nailed it. She nailed it. She, she really uh, came up with the feeling of the song, but... It was a wild ride to get it. Thanks to all three of you for being here today. This is Gina Asher for Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in November of 2013. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.